Uh, good morning, Hope Brooklyn. Uh, it's really good to be with you today. My name is Robert Elkin, and I'm a longtime church planter and pastor here in Brooklyn. Uh, and I now am the director of training for church planting uh, for Redeemer City to City. So I uh, live in uh, Williamsburg with my wife and two little kids. And uh, it's really good to be with you this morning and uh, honored that you would join us. Um, these last few days and weeks, months have honestly been the most exhausting, disorienting, isolating uh, times of my life, as um, they probably likely have been for you as well. Uh, we have, uh, we're three months maybe into a quarantine, into a global pandemic uh, that is changing our city, changing our nation, changing our world in ways that we are still trying to figure out. Uh, but they're affecting us individually. We also uh, have uh, witnessed another example of police brutality as a black brother was murdered on camera for the world to see. Uh, and that has just highlighted hundreds of years of racism in our country that have yet to be uh, fully addressed. Um, but we're sitting in the midst of that and now uh, rioting and protesting some uh, peaceful, some not, uh, across our city, uh, in our backyard. And many of us have uh, participated in those protests. And uh, our city and world are changing rapidly. And uh, living in New York, we're right in the middle of it. And I know that it's affecting each of us in ways. Uh, it's affecting us emotionally, it's affecting our work, it's affecting our lives, it's affecting our families, it's affecting our relationships with people both in the city and around the country. And I just want to begin by acknowledging all of that. Um, and today I want, to, I want to wade into some of the waters and some of the questions that I think that we're all asking. We're, I know that I've been asking this question, I'm sure many have, this, this question that we often probably ask, but now more than ever, which is, where is God right now? Where is God in the midst of all of this? And then the second question is, how can we, how can I individually and how can we be a part of the lasting change that's needed in our world? You know, beyond sort of Instagram activism toward lasting change. You know, something that I worry about and think about is how long will the change last um, after the protesting end, uh, ends, after the pandemic ends? Like, how can we be a part of changing our world beyond just this current moment. And Hope Brooklyn has been in the middle of this sermon series called Missio Dei. Like, what does it look like for us to join the mission of God? And I think we believe that the mission of God didn't start with the pandemic. It didn't start with um, the, the murders that have happened around our country in recent weeks. It didn't start with um, the protests that have happening. The mission of God has been happening long before. It's been something that God has been engaging with for centuries and millennium upon millennium. And so we want to ask that question, what does it look like for us to join the mission of God? Uh, I want to I begin answering those two questions. Where is God and how can we join his mission uh, with the story uh, of a woman? A woman in John chapter 4, her story is recorded for us. She is sometimes called the Samaritan woman. She is sometimes called the woman at the well. But I want to retell her story and spend most of the time during this talk just walking through her story because I think you'll see the connections from the story of this woman. And we'll begin to be able to unpack 
um, where God is in the midst of our story, and we'll begin to unpack um, the mission that God invites us to join him in uh, here in 2020 and beyond. So I want to start by talking about women in ancient times. If we're going to understand the woman at the well, we have to understand what she would have experienced as a woman in ancient times. Women in ancient times were marginalized, they were oppressed, and they were mistreated largely. Not completely, but largely. Um, most cultures believed that women were inferior to men. Therefore, they had uh, little to no voice or role in public life. They were subordinate to males at home. They were expected to stay at home and to raise the children. They were not able to own property. And men and women largely didn't interact except for in the home. Women were treated unfairly and unjustly in society. There were no equal rights for women in ancient times. And that really spans across cultures. So this was a Samaritan woman. So she, being a woman, experienced much of the inequality that women experienced, but she was also Samaritan. Samaritans were Jewish people who lived in an area between Jerusalem and Galilee. Samaritans had different religious beliefs than Jews. They both believed in the God of Abraham, but they had different biblical interpretations. So they had different worship practices. They had different religious observances, almost like different denominations in a way. But this, these religious differences divided Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans also weren't purely Jewish. They were descendants of Jews who had married outside of Judaism. So Samaritans were a mixed race, which back then was a huge deal and caused more division. Jewish people looked down on Samaritans and treated them as less than human because of their race. There was an immense amount of hostility between Jews and Samaritans almost entirely because of their religious differences, but primarily because of racism that existed. Samaritans lived between Jerusalem and Galilee. So Jews who had to travel from Jerusalem to Galilee, which happened often, had to travel around Samaria. So they wouldn't walk the road through Samaria. They would go an extra distance just to avoid interacting with Samaritan people. That's how deep their racism ran. Remember, they had no cars, they had no highways, but still traveling by foot, by camel, they still would travel the extra distance just to avoid Samaritan people. So this woman in John chapter four was a Samaritan woman. She had two things going against her. She's what we would call now a double minority. But there's more to her story. She had been married five times. Now in ancient times, when you're a woman, when you're a double minority, your husband, your children, your family was the source of your livelihood. Your identity was tied to your husband. And this woman had tried and failed five times to be married and had a family, and each time failed. And now she was living with a man who wasn't her husband. Back then, purity and chastity was very important for women. And she had completely lost that. Her livelihood was provided by her husband, and she had lost that. 
And now she's sleeping with a man, but getting nothing back from him in return. No commitment from him, no provision for him, no livelihood from him, no family or children from him. In ancient times, this woman had sunk as low as you can go. Not only is she a double minority by being a Samaritan woman, but she is actually isolated from the rest of the Samaritan woman, women of her, up from her town. How do we know that? She was drawing water at noon alone. Now, what was the practice that women had for drawing water from the well? Well, women would travel together, always together, never alone, and they would always go early in the morning at sunrise or late in the evening at dusk. Why? Because it was the cool of the day. They always traveled together because it was safer, because they had friendship, they had relationship, they could support each other. And they always went in the morning, they always went in the evening. So here this woman is at a well alone at noon. We know that that tells us that all of the, 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 the marriages that had failed for her had isolated her not only from the, the opportunity to marry, but it had also isolated her from all of the women in her town. Even the Samaritan women won't associate with her. She's a double minority. Men won't marry her. Women won't associate with her. Both Jews and Samaritans look down on her. She is the definition of racial and gender injustice. She's isolated, she's oppressed, she's alone, she's hurting, she's traumatized, and she has no hope for change. She has no hope for a better life. She has no hope for connection. She has no hope for healing. She has no hope for restoration. And in our story in John 4, this is the situation where we meet her. The first words out of her mouth spoken to Jesus are this. Why are you, a Jewish man, talking to me, a Samaritan woman? She knows Jesus has begun a conversation with her saying, can you draw me some water? And just the fact that Jesus talks to her, catches her so off guard, surprises her so much. But she didn't know how much Jesus knew about her. I mean, it surprised her only knowing that Jesus would talk to a Samaritan woman, much less everything else about her. Jesus responds with, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus, right from the outset, offers her hope. And she is intrigued. But she has more questions. For good reason. She doesn't trust men. Why should she? But the hope that Jesus offers, the glimmer of hope, draws her deeper into the conversation. So she asked Jesus for this water, saying, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. But Jesus isn't ready to give her that yet. He said, Jesus says, go call your husband and come back. And the woman says, I have no husband. She's hiding. If this Jewish man knew everything about her, he'll walk away. But Jesus already knew. Jesus says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have five husbands and the man, man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. She's been exposed and she knows it. 
But she thinks, why is he talking to me? If he knows everything about me, first of all, how does he know everything about me? And secondly, why is he talking to me? She comes up with a solution to this, an answer to this question. He must be a prophet. So if he's a prophet, she wants to know more about God. Specifically, where is this God? Is he on our mountain or your mountain, our temple or your temple, she asks. She's cutting through the different religious interpretations between Jews and Samaritans, and she wants to know where is God? Jesus answered, the time has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Jesus invites her into a relationship with God. And it doesn't matter what race she is. It doesn't matter what gender she is. It doesn't matter what mistakes she's made. It doesn't matter how much money or wealth she has. It doesn't matter where she lives. God invites everyone into relationship with him. The woman says, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. What is she saying? Okay, you're telling me where God is. I want to know where the Savior is. I mean, God is inviting me to worship, but I need a Savior. It's such a profoundly honest statement from her. I need hope. I need salvation. I need any way out. Most theologians think that she's just putting up a theological argument to distract Jesus. But I believe she's crying out from the depths of her soul for help, for connection, and for salvation. Think about her situation. Why would she care about theological clarity? She's been oppressed, marginalized, hurt, traumatized, and isolated from her own people. She needs the Messiah. She needs a savior. And maybe this prophet can tell her more about this Messiah. But Jesus does more than tell her about salvation. Jesus declares, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. The words give me chills. The Messiah, the savior of the world, has found this woman at noon alone at a well, and he has offered her hope and salvation. This woman won the lottery, but it wasn't a lottery that gets taxed and spent. It was an eternal lottery, and she is ecstatic about it. She leaves her water jug behind her source of livelihood, her source of life. She just leaves it behind, she's so excited. She runs back to town, ready to tell everyone about Jesus. And just then the disciples return. And they are incredibly confused. Why was Jesus talking to this woman? Jewish men don't talk to women like her. They were disciples of Rabbi Jesus. They were training for religious leadership of some kind. Following Jesus was like their seminary. But they, of course, were missing the essence of Jesus, the presence of God, the work and the mission of God, the heart of true religion. They viewed the world through lenses of race and gender and socioeconomic class. 
and they had profiled that woman. They were following the world's systems of injustice and oppression and marginalization. They were up and coming religious leaders, yet they were incredibly misogynistic and they were racist. Jesus answers quickly saying, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus came to reconcile people to God and to each other, to break down dividing walls of race and gender and socioeconomics, to bring justice to broken systems, to bring a new kingdom defined by love and equality and grace. In Jesus's kingdom, the witness of resurrection would be spoken actually by women. In Jesus's kingdom, there would be no more division, no more racism, no more misogyny. Galatians 3 says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Jesus goes on. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't give the disciples even a moment to question him. He goes deeper. He says to them, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Jesus is calling his disciples to see the world differently, to repent of their sins of racism. He's calling out the religious leaders of his day who have been silent and who have even participated in the oppression and marginalization. And he is calling his disciples to engage the world differently that the world is full of people and both individually and collectively, people who are oppressed, isolated, marginalized, forgotten, and left behind. Jesus says that this is both the mission of God and the heart of religion. This is what it means to love our neighbor. I love the end of the story. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did, she said. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. The woman becomes the apostle to the Samaritans. She's given a new identity in Jesus. She's restored fully to her community. And now she's leading a new mission to tell others about the Savior. And she is speaking against and even changing the systems of racism in her own town. Such a beautiful story and so important for our current day. So much needs to change in our society. There's so much healing from trauma that's needed. There's so much restorative justice to be done. There's so much heart change that's needed in each of us. I worry that after the protests end and after, after the pandemic ends, that we'll all just go back to where we started. That we won't have any, learned anything from the pandemic or the protests. That systems won't change. That you and I won't change. Jesus calls us on a mission. He says, the fields are ripe for harvest. So how can we change? How can we make a difference? How can we join the mission of God? Well, there are many important and creative ways that we could answer that question. Allow me to hone in on just one part of the answer. 
Back at the beginning of the story, the very beginning of John 4, it says this, Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Remember that trip that the Jewish people take where they would go way out of their way, just in, just in order walking, they would go way out of their way just to avoid Samaritans. What does it say? Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to take a walk. What was the catalytic moment for everything that changed in that town? Where not only a woman's life changed, but a whole town changed. And not just individuals and hearts, but systems in that town. Where now a woman who's been married five times, and is a Samaritan, and is a woman, is now the apostle to that town. And leading that town forward in change. What was the catalytic moment for that? What was the tipping point, to use Malcolm Gladwell's term, that created this massive change? You want to know what the tipping point was? A walk. A walk that crossed racial and socioeconomic borders. A walk that allowed Jesus to interact with a Samaritan woman. Obviously, I believe that the walks that people are taking now, protesting, will change the world. We hope that they are a tipping point for justice and equality. But after the protests are over, what if we, the church, keep walking? Could that be the tipping point for an entire city to change? I believe that walking is a key activity in the mission of God. Three ideas why walking is a tipping point that can change our city and our world. One, we walk to engage with people. Two, we walk to engage in social justice. And three, we walk to engage with Jesus. First, we walk to engage with people. Walking slows us down to meet new people and hear their stories. Everyone is eye to eye when we walk. There's no looking down on another person. It gives us a chance to get to know new people and see them as fellow humans. It creates a space to listen and to learn better than what you get on social media or in a book. The listening and learning that happens face to face. Listening well and learning well lead to loving well. Our racism will slowly be broken if we walk to engage with people. So find somewhere in your neighborhood where people of a different race are, a bodega, a neighborhood garden, a bus stop, and introduce yourself. Ask them their name. Ask them a little bit about their story. I think an important question for the church to ask is, who is the Samaritan woman that Jesus wants me to engage with today? Who is the person who looks different than me? And how can I engage them? So many of my friends in Williamsburg are black and brown people who I got to know just by slowing down and walking. When you get to know the, 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 the diverse people of New York City and how beautiful they are, you'll find the racism in your heart breaking and you'll learn to love like Jesus. Jesus will be in that moment of connection and you'll find ways to love. We walk 
to engage with people eye to eye, face to face, name to name, story to story as total equals and fellow humans. And in that moment, we're not playing Jesus, but Jesus is there. And in the connection, love sprouts and is born. Two, we walk to engage in social justice. We walk to one, engage people. Two, we walk to engage in social justice. In New York City, there are social and racial and cultural borders everywhere. Neighborhoods divided by streets, neighborhood divided by housing projects. In Williamsburg, Grand Street is one of those streets in East Williamsburg. One side of Grand Street historically have been Italians, the other side, people of color. One side, homes, the other side, housing projects. And for decades, people have not crossed Grand Street. You can find Italians in one, on one side of Grand Street in East Williamsburg that maybe have spent their entire life not crossing Grand Street. And you can find the same with people of color on the other side. The church should exist without these social and racial and cultural borders. When we walk as the church, we must cross these borders and engage with people different than us. When we cross these borders, we learn how different people have been oppressed and marginalized, and it's up close and it's personal. And I recognize that this kind of walking, especially to cross social and racial and cultural borders is, is especially complicated for a person of color. Ahmaud Arbery was a black man running through a white neighborhood and he was gunned down by white men. So what would it look like if we, the church, the diverse church, the church that is black and brown and white cross borders in New York together? The church should be a community that walks together and together engages in social justice. You see, the church needs to repent of staying confined to the four walls of a Sunday worship gathering. The church needs to repent of racism and misogyny and socioeconomic inequality. The church needs to act more like Jesus. And the church right now has the opportunity to lead the way both in repentance and in activism. And I believe actually that it starts with walking together engaging people who are different, engaging in the social injustices in our city. We walk to engage with people. We walk to engage with social justice. And third, we walk to engage with Jesus. We walk to engage with Jesus. You see, so many of us, like the Samaritan woman, have experienced similar traumas, similar injustices from uh, misogynistic, some misogynistic, some racist, and some socioeconomic marginalization. So many of us, like the Samaritan woman, have been isolated during quarantine from our family and friends. So many of us, like the Samaritan woman, have mistakes and failures in our stories that shape our identity in the world. So many of us, if we are honest, feel many of the emotions that the Samaritan woman was experiencing in John 4. Isolation, disorientation, fear hopelessness. And it's right in these realities that Jesus meets us. Jesus is present with the marginalized and oppressed. 
Jesus is present with the isolated and quarantined. Jesus is present with people living with identities defined by the mistakes and failures of their past. Jesus is present with us in our emotional, honest vulnerability. You see, Jesus is at the water wells of today's world with the Samaritan women of today's world. The Samaritan woman actually was walking. She was alone. She was isolated. She was oppressed. She was marginalized. Many of us feel like in our walk, we're isolated, we're marginalized, we're forgotten, we're oppressed, we're alone. And that's exactly where Jesus met her. Wherever you are today, whatever your experience, whatever you are feeling, whatever path you walk, Jesus understands what you're going through and he is present with you. That's why Jesus went to the cross to fully experience isolation and fear and sadness and disorientation and oppression and marginalization and injustice and murder. He went to the cross to empathize with us. He went to the cross to overcome the oppression and injustice in his resurrection. The same resurrection that was first given witness to by a woman who had been a prostitute. When we walk, wherever we live, whatever our life experience, whatever our emotional state, Jesus is there engaging with us, speaking and inviting us into his love. When we experience the love of Jesus where we are, we learn to love people where they are. So how is Jesus today inviting us to himself right where we're at? And how is Jesus inviting us to join his mission? I believe it all starts with a walk. And that's my prayer for Hope Brooklyn. As you as a church walk through this series, Missio Day, asking this question, how do we join the mission of God? How can we change the world? We can walk with Jesus, with our neighbors for lasting change. That's my prayer for you. So let's finish by praying. Father, um, thank you for this church. Thank you for their heart, for people, their heart for justice. I pray that you would meet them where they are today, whatever they're feeling, wherever their story has brought them. Pray that they would feel your presence and experience your presence today, maybe like never before. That they, like the Samaritan woman, would open up about where they're at, how they're feeling, their mistakes, even the justices, injustices that they have endured. You would meet them there. And God, I pray for the mission of Hope Brooklyn, 
There are many elements in of the mission of God, but I believe that this one of this one part of your mission that just involves walking. God, I pray that you would empower Hope Brooklyn to walk, that they would be a walking church to engage with people, to engage with social justice, to engage with you, and you would bear beautiful fruit from the kingdom of God, for the kingdom of God from it. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.